Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. We hope you'll enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. All right, guys, I don't know if you've ever been called a tightwad in your life. Anybody ever been called a tightwad? I have. I know Wade has because I've heard Stacy do it before, okay? Uh, People like Wade and I are are definitely tightwads, but uh, I've usually been called that at times by people who are broke, and I've learned not to take money advice from broke people, okay? I've also been called a tightwad at at times like when you go to the restaurant and you only do like a a 10% tip rather than 15% or 20% tip, you know? Because I just figure if 10% is good enough for the Lord, it should be good enough for Cracker Barrel. But it's not. And, um, and at Cracker Barrel, man, they embarrass you there. You ever notice that? I always make Heather pay when we go there. Because when you go up to pay, they always say, is that your final total, sir? And then I always say no. And like, well, how much would you like to leave? And they're like, $3. Like, $3. How about that? $3, sir. And they say it to the whole restaurant. I hate that. And even if you leave a big tip, they still repeat out loud. It's embarrassing, man. So I do. I make her pay every time at the bear. I love it, but I don't like how they call your tip out loud to everybody on the speaker. It's ridiculous. But anyway, or maybe if you don't tip like your barber, your hairdresser, you're called a tightwad, or if you don't go on expensive vacations, or you don't spend money without kind of asking where it's coming from, maybe you're considered a tightwad. But the insinuation there is that we're not being very generous with money. But that's not always true. A tightwad may just be what you want when money is tight and times are tough. And so this morning, we're beginning a series called Tightwad, where we're going to learn how we as Christians should act when money is tight and times are tough. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says this, Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. So guys, it's very important that we use wisdom in the way that we manage God's money. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at three different instances in the Bible where God used people in incredible ways in difficult times. And so Genesis 41 is where we're going to be at this morning. It records the first instance that we're going to look at. It's the response of Joseph during a severe famine in the land of Egypt. And some of you are familiar with the story, but we're just going to kind of hone in on one part of it. So if you're familiar with Joseph's story, you know that the first 33 years of his life went pretty well, right? Wrong, okay? That's not true at all. He was his dad's favorite son, but you remember that his older brothers despised him because of that. They they hated him, and so they sold him into slavery where he landed in Egypt as a slave. And then later on after that, you remember he was falsely accused of raping his master's wife He was put into prison, okay? Didn't do it, but he spent time in jail for it. So after two whole years in jail, in this um, prison here, Pharaoh summoned Joseph to his palace because of his uh, reputation to be able to interpret dreams. And Pharaoh was having these dreams. They said this guy Joseph could interpret them, so he called for Joseph, and he did just that. Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream that was troubling him and told him, What it means is that there's going to be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. That's what your dream means, Pharaoh. And so Joseph advised the king because of this to store up 20% of the crops during the prosperous years so that there would be enough to live on during the lean years 
while the famine's going on. Pharaoh was blown away. He just didn't think about it. And so he was so impressed with Joseph that not only did he pardon him from prison, but he puts him in charge of the entire operation, making him second in command. Okay, the second most powerful man in Egypt. And so later on, uh, again, if you've read the story, you know Joseph's brothers repented for what they had done to him, and they come to Egypt to buy food for their family. And you remember what happens? Joseph forgives them, and then he even covers their moving expenses to Egypt. And many of us are very familiar with that part of the story. But the part of the story that I want us to focus in on today is the part that many of you may not notice, and that's how wise that Joseph was as an administrator of the resources of Egypt. We can learn a whole lot from him this morning about how to be a faithful steward, a faithful manager when times are tough and money is tight. So let's look at it in Genesis 41. Let's jump in starting in verse 47. The Bible says, as predicted, for seven years the land produced bumper crops. During those years, Joseph gathered all the crops grown in Egypt and stored the grain from the surrounding fields in the cities. He piled up huge amounts of grain, like sand on the seashore. And finally, he stopped keeping records because there was just too much to measure. The first lesson that you and I can learn from Joseph when money is tight and times are tough is this. Be disciplined enough to save during times of prosperity. Be disciplined enough to save during times of prosperity, during the good times. During those seven years of prosperity, he saved 20% of the harvest. And one of the biggest mistakes that we as Americans make is failing to save anything during times of abundance. You know that the average family's net worth in America in 2011 was almost $69,000. In 2021, last year, the average net worth of American family was $749,000. But at the same time, the average debt for the American family increased astronomically. The average credit card debt last year in our country was $6,270. That's just the average credit card debt. The truth is people just aren't saving these days. We're spending money on phones and watches and and services that at one time only the rich could afford those things. But, But now big screen TVs, the newest Apple computer, days at the spa, the massage therapist, um, brand new expensive vehicles are no longer extravagances. It seems like that everyone has or is doing these things nowadays. And so what happens is we begin with the mentality is that we're only going to spend what we make. And then it changes to we're spending more than we make, assuming that there's going to be enough out there someday to cover this. But you know what assuming does, right? It makes a donkey out of you and me, the King James Version of donkey. It makes that out of you and us. It makes us look foolish, you know. The average couple in our country spends more than they earn. The average American family spends a majority of their income repaying debt. The truth is we are up to our eyeballs in debt as a nation. It doesn't matter who the president is, that debt selling keeps growing, doesn't it? We're just, we're covered. If a famine ever comes, we're in trouble. 
And so no matter how good times may be financially, we need to remember that bad times will come as well. And they won't be so bad if we're prepared. And so I want to help us prepare this morning, okay? Because even when the economy is good, you and I can experience personal famines, can't we? I mean, there, there may be bar, a part of a hospital bill that wasn't covered by insurance and you're having to pay out of pocket. Uh, the, the kids may need braces. The car is in need of repairs. And it always comes at the worst possible time, doesn't it? Because there's never a good time for things like that. And if we don't have anything saved up for those unexpected uh, famines in our life, we will experience debt that will cost us way more than if we had just saved. You remember in Mark chapter 6 and verse 30 when Jesus fed the 5,000? Remember that story? Everyone had plenty to eat, and then Jesus told them to do what? After they were done, he said, I want you to pick up all the leftovers. Don't waste anything. And so they did that, and they collected 12 basketfuls of leftovers. So even when there was plenty, Jesus told them, conserve the extra. Don't Don't waste. And guys, one of the wisest things that we can do is to store up for a possible famine when we're living in times of prosperity. When things are going okay for you, going good financially, you got to save. Proverbs 21 verse 20 says this, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. How many of us spend whatever we get? I didn't write this. I just read it, okay? But it's saying that if we spend whatever we get, the Bible says we're acting like a fool. So what that means, practically speaking, is that we should live on less than we make. It means we may not buy the biggest house that we can afford, even though the bank says that we can afford it. It means we may not drive the most expensive car that we can finance and assume the money's always going to be there for the payment each month. It means we don't charge everything on a credit card not knowing how we're going to pay for it at the end of each month. We need to practice enough self-control in our personal finances to have some money left over for a rainy day. And so I want to share with you just four spending habits that prevent you and I from saving. Okay, A lot of us, we struggle to save, and I think there's four spending habits that, that makes that happen. And here they are. The first one is this. The first one is the impulsive spender. These people see something they want, and they've got to have it right now. They don't think about it. They don't pray about it. They don't talk it over with their spouse. They just buy it. Why? Because I've got a credit card, and I can do it. You ever notice how grocery stores, they put certain items at the end of the aisles or at the checkout lines, you know? That's to attract these kind of spenders, these kind of buyers, you know? Sometimes uh, we buy impulsively because it's fun, and sometimes we buy impulsively because we're fed up. Maybe you've had the same old car for 15 years now, and it won't start. And you call your spouse, and you say, you know what, it's going to be $200 to get it towed. It's $300 to get it fixed. So you go to the new car dealership, and 30 minutes later, you've dropped $40,000 for a new car. You're fed up. You bought on impulse but you justify it thinking that you can afford it. And it's okay if you can't afford it. I really mean that. If you can afford it, have at it. But chances are, if you could have afforded it, 
you wouldn't be driving around a 15-year-old car to begin with, right? That's the truth. The, the, the second type is what we'll call the compulsive spender. Compulsive. These are the people who have this deep, unmet need in their life, and they're trying to fill it with stuff. Uh, there's this deeper pain that they're trying to escape, and so they buy things. And it acts kind of like a sedative for them. It's just a temporary fix. They, they, they buy stuff they already have at their house because it was on sale, right? And besides, we'll use it someday anyway, you know? They realize that normally it's 50 and I got it for 20 but you just spent $20 you didn't have, you know? So it's compulsive. It's irresistible to them. A third type of spender is what we'll call the, the special interest spender. This is the person who does pretty good at keeping a budget, but there's this one area, right? Some of you are there, right? There's this one area of weakness in their life, and when they're around that one area, they lose all sense of control, self-control. You can tell these people when you go to their house, and one area is out of control compared to the rest of the house. Uh, they may have like an entire workout gym in their living room, but no furniture, okay? Um, they're probably a special interest buyer. If, they, if you have 10 drivers in your golf bag, but your kids don't have any tennis shoes, you're probably a special interest buyer. I mean, if you have four bulldogs and your husband eats beef assistant every night with no beef, we, well, we won't go there. <clears throat> I don't mean to get personal. Um, but anyway, that, that might be special interest. Just kidding, sort of. Uh, the last one is this, the status seeker spender, status seeker. These people buy things to impress other people. They spend money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't know. Doesn't that happen all the time? People buying things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't even know. They drive the newest expensive car, living in the nicest neighborhood, wearing the nicest clothes. Now listen, please hear me. Is there anything wrong with that if they have the money? No, absolutely not. But what's the motive? What's their motive? You know, years ago, the label on clothing used to be on the inside where you couldn't see it. Now it's on the outside, so everybody can see how stupid we are for paying that much money for that brand of jeans, right? And we justify it by saying things like, well, we just want our kids to have the best, you know, to look nice, and, uh, you know, I have to dress for success at, at work or, or maintain a certain image. Proverbs 13, 7, look at it. Some who are poor pretend to be rich. Others who are rich pretend to be poor. Which one would you rather be? Would you rather be poor pretending to be rich? Or would you rather be rich pretending to be poor? Well, people will respect us more when you know, we're not fake and phony. When we're not trying to make a false impression. There's one thing that both Christians and non-Christians alike despise, and that's being fake. If people think you're faking it, you will lose all influence with them. And so let's learn to control our spending habits. Look what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says. Dear friends, I warn you as just temporary residents and foreigners 
to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. And so, guys, let's be disciplined enough to save up during times of prosperity so that we'll have what we need to sustain us during times of famine in our personal lives, okay? And one way I want to help you do that and be practical is this. And I taught an entire sermon here before on this. We've talked about it several times. I actually went back and looked at the podcast date a year before last. Dave and I do the money series every other year. Uh, One of us will teach it. And so January 21st of 2020, entire sermon, we have a podcast about this principle. If you want to go back and listen to it. But it's the simplest, wisest principle when it comes to money management that I can give you. And it's simply called the 10-10-80. 10-10-80. Give, save, live is how we've taught it here before as well. But guys, listen. This alone, <clears throat> this principle alone could cure most financial problems. It's simply where we give, save, and live in that order. So what happens is we just simply give the first 10% back to God. Not because He needs our money, Right? Because he wants us to demonstrate our faith in him and our trust in him that he can do more with 90% than we can do with 100% of what he has entrusted us with. And I want you to remember when when you hear that, it's all his anyway. It's not like that 10% is God's and the 90% is ours. I mean, it's it's 100% his. He's the one who gave it to us just to, to manage it. And so the first 10% goes back to God. We pay back first simply as a matter of faith and trust. We're just managers, remember that. And then as soon as you do that, the first 10%, you pay yourself. So we pay God and then we pay ourselves. <clears throat> Save the next 10%, is what I mean by that. Some of you work so hard at your job. You work hard, long hours, and you never, ever pay yourself. And so do that. Pay yourself. Save money. Now, this isn't the same thing as putting it on a credit card, okay? This is money we have saved intentionally ahead of time. And then after you've done that, you, you, say, you tithe 10% and you save 10%. Then you live on the rest. You live on 80%, the last 80%. And listen to me. If there ever comes a time where you can't do that, then what we need to do is adjust our lifestyle, not our giving percentage and our saving percentage, because that's what happens. People look at it, they get on paper, go, can't do it, can't do it, can't live on 80%, so I'm going to cut out what I'm giving to church, I'm going to cut out what I'm saving, and we'll live on 95% or 98% or 100, right? And so we'll get to that in a minute, because I know some uh, how some of you may be feeling when you hear that. But don't Adjust your percentage, adjust your lifestyle to where you can live on the 80%, okay? Get to that in a second. But let me tell you this, this is an encouragement. If we would just practice this from the time you get your first paycheck this year, you've not gotten it yet, it will cure most of your financial problems. I promise you. You could experience freedom if you would just practice this stuff, put it into practice, right? In Matthew, it says, those who hear these words of mine and put them into practice are wise. But if we don't put this stuff into practice, it's just meaningless. So let's put it into practice, okay? I've told my kids who have been practicing this principle for as long as they can remember, they don't remember not practicing this principle, that if they would begin living this way when they got their first job, they'll probably never have any real serious financial problems. 
that God will bless you so much and you won't have to borrow money at 21% interest on a credit card and, and you'll be out of debt so you actually get to keep what you're making. You know, that's wonderful. That's freedom. And you know what? It'll bless other areas of your life as well. The number one reason that people argue in marriage and end up divorced is because of money. What if you didn't have to worry about that in your marriage? What if that wasn't even an issue? It was just set each month. You'd have to even talk about it, really. Wouldn't that be a lot less stress and you would feel some freedom in that area of your life? Now, here it is. Listen, I'm not naive. I've been in your seat before. I've listened to people teach this stuff, and I know what some of you probably are thinking, okay? How this plan is just unrealistic. It, it just it doesn't work for me. I, I mean, I get what you're saying and what you're trying to communicate, but it doesn't work for me because you don't know my circumstances. And you may be sitting there thinking, you know what? I just got married, and I have a house payment and a car payment and utilities that take more than 80% just in those three things alone. I just can't afford to give away 10% of my income and then save 10% more. And you know what my response to that would be? Is that, is that you can't afford not to. You can't afford not to. So make the necessary lifestyle adjustments to be able to do that. I'm telling you, it will set you free. Others of you may be sitting there thinking this. You know what? It's all good and all, but it's too late for me. It's too late for me. I've got a wife. I've got three kids. I can barely survive right now just paying for the things that we need. So let me just challenge you. Sit down this week and just examine your situation very carefully and just ask yourself some practical questions. What do we need to do to make this happen? What do we need to do? Is it a smaller house? Do we need to quit eating out so much? Do we need to get rid of the TV subscription? Do we need to get rid of the workout equipment that we never use? And I know you may have to humble yourself, but there are all kinds of creative ways to save money. But no matter how tough it gets, don't ever stoop so low that you would give somebody some used little cast iron skillets for Christmas like I did this year, okay? Uh, Chad's not even here, but he came over and Heather was going to throw these little cast iron skillets away. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. Chad Starrett will love that. I put them in a bag, okay, Christmas bag. He comes over. It's the best thing he got, he said. His favorite Christmas present. So, um, but they were used and rusted, but he, he loved it. So don't do that. Don't stoop that low. Here's another lesson that we can learn from Joseph is this. There's three things. Second one is this. Be wise enough to use the reserves during times of adversity. Be wise enough to use the reserves during times of adversity. Look at verse 53. It says, at, at, at last, the seven years of bumper crops throughout the land of Egypt came to an end. Then the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had predicted. The famine also struck all the surrounding countries, but throughout Egypt, guess what? Plenty of food. Eventually, however, the famine spread throughout the land of Egypt as well. And when the people cried out to Pharaoh for food, he told them, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you to do. That's trust. So with severe famine everywhere, Joseph opened up the storehouses and distributed grain to the Egyptians for the famine was severe throughout the land of Egypt. Now you, you read that and you think, well, duh, right? That's what you're supposed to do. That's why you saved it, you know. That's the logical response. But it's one of those things that's difficult when it's up close and personal, isn't it? 
Joseph was willing to use the extra when the famine came. He didn't hoard it up as if it were his own. His self-worth was not threatened when the surplus began to dwindle. That was the reason that they stored it up in the first place. But have you noticed that when people oversee any kind of reserve, that there's a real temptation for them to see that as their own kind of personal security? You know, saving becomes like a habit until there's satisfaction in saving itself. And, and the real purpose is forgotten. There are churches who operate like this. There are churches who have a hoarder's mentality. I mean, the people give money to the church to be used for God's work, but it pains some of the leadership to ever write a check for anything. You know, we don't, we don't have that problem here, by the way. Dave, he just flies them out of here, you know. But uh, I'm just kidding, he doesn't. But some churches are like that. They will not write a check for anything. They're, they're just hoarding it. And every time they pay their pastor, they, they wince, you know. They don't even want to pay their pastor. How many churches around here have full-time pastors even in our own county? Not many, you know. They don't want to pay. It's crazy. But the Bible says to the contrary. The Bible says opposite of that. If Joseph was a hoarder, if he had this hoarder's mentality, he could have made life miserable for the Egyptians, couldn't he? Questioning, delaying, having a condescending spirit, making them jump through all kinds of hoops and, and cut through all this red tape, anything to keep them from using the grain. He could have done that. But look what it says in Proverbs 11, verse 26. When people do that, people curse those who hoard their grain, but they bless the one who sells in time of need. Is that not his situation there? So what we save is not to be hoarded forever. It's just to be used at the right time. Okay? I heard about some older parents who were in their 80s, and uh, they had enough money in their savings account to live comfortably until they were 110 years old. 110 Okay, And each month when the Social Security check would come in, the wife had to get it and hide it from her husband because if not, he would deposit 100% of it, every bit of it, into their savings account. It was just a habit for him to save all that he could. And he never really stopped to ask why. Like, why am I doing this? I remember the very first job I ever had when I was in college. My dad had taught me that 10% right off the top was to go to the Lord. And it took me a lot later on in life to learn uh, to begin saving. Uh, saving is setting money aside over time so you can buy something with cash. It's like saving $400 a month for 10 months so that you can buy a $4,000 car. Or, or you save for a rainy day. That would be the equivalent to a term today for Joseph's famine is what I call a rainy day fund. Um, because it's eventually going to rain, right? It's going to rain. But the dangers of accumulating too many possessions is that they become what brings us our sense of security, listen, rather than depending on the Lord. That's what happens to many people when they save. That becomes their security rather than Jesus. We begin to trust in our bank account rather than on Him. And guys, we can very easily become like the foolish farmer in the Bible who it said about him he had many goods stored up for years to come. So just eat, drink, be merry. It's all good. Remember that? It's not all good. The reason we're to save isn't so we can put our trust 
and money. But the reason is because we want to be good managers of God's money and have something in the storehouse, in savings, when the famine, when the rainy days come, because they're going to come. And and not just for ourselves, but we want to have stuff for others, right? Look at Proverbs 6, verse 6. (coughs) It says, take a lesson from the ants. Think you can learn anything from an ant? The Bible says we can. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Learning from an ant. Yep. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, what do they do? They labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. The ant stores up food in the summer so it will have something to eat in the winter. Now listen, there's a difference between a harvester and a hoarder. Okay? A harvester stores up in the fall so there'll be something to eat during the winter. A hoarder stores up year-round so they can have a sense of security. That's the difference. But it is a false sense of security because why? Because there's never enough, just like the 81-year-old man there. There's never going to be enough to give them that sense of security. And that's why we're told repeatedly in the Scriptures, don't lay up treasure on earth. Don't trust in riches because one day it will all disappear. And so being a wise manager means that we save up for the rainy days, true, but we're also willing to use the surplus when those rainy days come. Some people won't. Last lesson I want us to learn from Joseph is this. Be perceptive enough to take advantage of the opportunities that arise. Be perceptive enough to take advantage when opportunities arise. You know, Joseph didn't just endure the famine. He took advantage of the opportunity to prosper through it. In Genesis 47, it records the end of the famine. Joseph is 33 years old. It's the end of the prosperous years. And he's a brilliant administrator who almost everybody is pleased with the way that he's handled this emergency. He's kind of like a national hero. He didn't just give grain to the people. He made them pay for it. Look at verse 13. It says, Meanwhile, the famine became so severe that all the food was used up, and people were starving throughout the lands of Egypt and Canaan. By selling grain to the people, Joseph eventually collected all the money in Egypt and Canaan, and he put the money in Pharaoh's treasury. Now, he doesn't take away their dignity by just giving it to them. They had to earn their food still. They had to pay for it. He didn't create this welfare mindset that the government would take care of them. And neither did he establish a socialistic culture where everything belongs to the government and they would give them enough to survive. He didn't do any of that, did he? Look at verse 15. It says, When the people of Egypt and Canaan ran out of money, all the Egyptians came to Joseph. Our money's gone, they cried. But please give us food or we'll die Before your very eyes, Joseph replied, since your money is gone, bring me your livestock. I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. Now think about it. Their livestock was probably pretty frail at this point. I mean, they were most likely starving because they couldn't even feed themselves, much less their livestock. They probably would not survive very long. And so they were probably of very little value to Joseph. But the government had grain to feed them. Look at verse 17. And so they brought their livestock to Joseph in exchange for food. 
in exchange for their horses, flocks of sheep and goats, herds of cattle and donkeys. Joseph provided them with food for another year. But that year ended. The next year they came again. And they said, we can't hide the truth from you, my Lord. Our money's gone and our livestock and cattle are yours. We have nothing left to give but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your very eyes? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We offer our land and ourselves as slaves for Pharaoh. Just give us grain so we may live and not die. And so the land does not become empty and desolate. So Joseph brought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was so severe. And soon all the land belonged to Pharaoh. Author Henry Morris writes this. He says, some people have felt this was a scheme of Joseph, not only to get wealthy, but to enslave the people. He says, however, it was their proposal, not his. And whatever gain was involved accrued to Pharaoh, not to Joseph. It's true that it created what amounted to be a feudalistic economy, but the alternative, that of placing everyone on a welfare system, would have destroyed personal and national morale, would have bankrupt the government, and probably would have culminated in social anarchy. The stores of food would have been depleted, and mass starvation would have followed, he writes. You know, sometimes freedoms have to be temporarily sacrificed in times of emergency, don't they? I mean, we saw this after 9-11. We've seen this during the COVID pandemic. That was the case in Egypt as well. Joseph's system limited freedom, but it was better than mass starvation. The people had learned to trust Joseph. I mean, he, he always charged them a fair price. Even though they had used up all of their money and their possessions, they still had their self-respect. Look at verse 21. As for the people, he made them all slaves from one end of Egypt to the other. The only land he didn't buy was the land belonging to the priests. They received an allotment of food directly from Pharaoh, and so they didn't need to sell their land. And then look what Joseph says to the people. Look, he said, today I bought you and your land for Pharaoh. I will provide you with seed so you can plant the fields. And then when you harvest it, just one-fifth of your crop will belong to Pharaoh, but you can keep the remaining four-fifths as seed for your fields and as food for you, your household, and all your little ones. You know what they responded? You know what they said to him, how they responded? You've saved our lives, they said. You have saved our lives, they exclaimed. May it please you, my Lord, to let us be Pharaoh's servants. I want you to keep in mind, you know, you know the story, but Joseph had been a slave himself for 13 years. And he knew how degrading and humiliating that could be. And so rather than make them slaves, in the end, he makes them farmers. That's what he did. He makes them farmers. They get to stay on the land that they previously owned and give back 20% to Pharaoh. And the rest, the 80%, is theirs to keep. Well, that's exactly what they had been doing already for seven years. It wasn't socialism. There was incentive to earn the 80% that they get to keep. And you know what Pharaoh would have done if not for Joseph? Probably the exact opposite. Joseph was a, was a creative businessman, but he had a sensitive heart for people. And you know what he did? He made the most of his opportunity here. He gained influence. He helped Pharaoh get rich. 
He helped the Egyptians by giving them grain to eat and a chance to recover. No wonder when you read those scriptures, they said to him, you've saved our lives. You've saved our lives. So guys, listen, when money is tight and times are tough, <coughs> excuse me, we need to be alert when opportunities come our way. Listen, when a rainy day comes in your life, it may be a good opportunity, a good time to teach our children what's really important and say things like, guys, listen, we're going to cut back on our vacation budget this year, but we're still going to have a good time. And what's really important is not money, but it's our relationship with God and other people. You know what? It may be time to advance financially for those of you who are alert. One of the false teachings of the health and wealth prosperity preachers is that if God is for you, then you'll be rich. You know, that's what they say. That's simply not true. Some of God's greatest saints were poor, starting with Jesus and the Apostle Paul. But the other extreme taught in some churches is that it's a sin to have money or to have stuff, possessions. Guys, some of God's greatest saints were also wealthy, like David Barnabas, Nicodemus. Listen, the Bible teaches that it's the love of money, not money itself, that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of when we put it in front of things like our relationship with God. The Bible teaches, it does teach it's a sin to have possessions and not help your brother who's in need. That's true. But not the brother who's lazy and won't get off the couch and, and go apply for a job. Not the brother who won't buy gas for his vehicle, but will go buy cigarettes. The one who's truly in need. And that's what Joseph did when money was tight and times were tough. He helped other people who were in need. You know, Opie mentioned this already this morning, but I was really proud of our church last month when we gave just over $16,000 that was needed to meet our budget. It demonstrated that many of you save money for when there is a need. It also demonstrated that we're not really trusting in riches. I mean, De December is, is a month that many of us spend more money than any other because of Christmas presents. But on short notice, our little church gave almost double what our church normally gives in a typical month. And that just shows that many of you, your hopes are not in money, but it's in Jesus. That, that was really encouraging to us as a church. I want you to know that. When money is tight, God's people stepped up and they met a need that the church had. But can I just ask you as we get ready to close this morning, where do you turn when times are tough? Where do you turn? I mean, is your life wrapped up in things or is the motto on your money the motto of your life that in God we trust. Look at Proverbs 11.4, which says, Riches aren't going to help you on the day of judgment, but right living can save you from death. Guys, in other words, all the money in the world is not going to save you from death, but the righteous blood of Jesus will. And so the most important step you can take during difficult times is to put your trust in Him, in God. Our security, our hope, our contentment, all of those things are in Him, regardless, listen, regardless of what's going on in the economy. Paul said it like this in Philippians 4, in verse 12, speaking in the, in the context of contentment. He said, I know how to live on almost nothing. 
and I also know how to live on almost everything. I've learned the secret of contentment here. He's talking about in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or a little, for I can do everything, how? Through Christ. That's the only way I can do it, is through Christ, He's the one who gives me the strength. And guys, I'll just close by saying this. The truth is, if you have Jesus, you're a wealthy person. You're a wealthy person. Regardless of how you're doing in the stock market, of how far in debt you are, you are still very, very rich. If you don't have Jesus, you are spiritually poor because we brought nothing into this world and we'll take nothing out of it. And guys, one day you'll stand before God spiritually bankrupt. And so we want to invite you this morning to give your life to Jesus, to receive His incredible riches, and just to dedicate your life just to serving Him and, and, and things that really, truly matter in life. Is the motto of your life, in God I trust? Do you live like that? If God is tugging on your heart this morning, just, just urging you to follow him, then do it. Don't wait. If you'd like to join this church, don't wait and put it off for another year. There are people who would love to talk with you about following Jesus, about church membership, or simply just pray with you to be more committed this year. Don't put it off. Don't do it. Let this year be the best year of your life walking with Jesus. Let, let me pray for us as the band comes up. Father, I know this is tough stuff for many of us in the room, but God, it's so simple. You've said that if we would just obey you, if we would just do what you say, you'd bless us. And so God, even though it may seem insurmountable for some of us, and it just doesn't add up on paper, help us just to do what you say. Just simply do what you say. That's what trust is. It's just trusting that what you said is true. We'll follow it. And if we'll just handle the effort, that you'll handle the results that we can leave all the consequences up to you when we obey. God, help us to step through that, uh, step through that door of obedience this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.